0: Welcome to the Hope on the Hard Road podcast, where you and your family can find community, find encouragement, and find hope for the road ahead. Speak encouraging words to one another. Build up hope so that you will all be together in this. 1 Thessalonians 5.11
1: Hey guys, we're so glad you're listening. Today we're talking with attorney, Wendy Dumo. Wendy is an incredible advocate for families of children with special needs and those with disabilities. You're going to love her caring, fun, and engaging way of presenting the insights that she brings to this first episode in our special needs support series. Let's get started.
0: Hey, Wendy, it is so great to have you back on the podcast with us today. And we're so thankful that you came to share a little bit about the regional center
2: with us. Yeah. Thanks, you guys. Good to see you.
1: So, Wendy, can you tell us a little bit about what a regional center is?
2: Sure. Um, so regional centers are local facilities that are responsible for providing services and supports um, to individuals with developmental disabilities, and they are state operated. Um, there's 21 of them in California. It, they're very, it's specific to California. So I think there's probably a, a developmental services system in every state. But in California, we have an agency called um, the California Department of Developmental Services, and then they provide funding and some rules and things to the 21 regional centers. So there's eligibility criteria um, to get services from the regional center, which we can talk about. And like I said, there's 21 of them spread across California.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned the eligibility. Who exactly would be eligible for regional center?
2: Yeah, you would. Ha- so the person would need to have a developmental disability, and that's defined by the law. So um, when they're when they're talking about a developmental disability, they're talking about um, one or two or or however many of these five categories. So one would be autism. There's um, you could be eligible if you have cerebral palsy. If you have epilepsy, which is a seizure disorder, if you have an intellectual disability or what's known as fifth category, and people say, oh, that's the catch-all category, but it's really not. It's um, you have to function like somebody with an intellectual disability, so you don't maybe have the IQ of somebody with an intellectual disability, it's higher, um, but you function like somebody with with an intellectual disability or you need services similar to somebody with an intellectual disability. So that's fifth category. So it could be other things like some, one example would be somebody with fetal alcohol syndrome. Sometimes they have a higher IQ, but they require similar services like somebody with an intellectual disability. Um, There's a couple other things you have to show. So it's not just having a developmental disability. your disability must have originated prior to age 18 and it has to be expected to continue indefinitely. So that's the second piece to it. And um, sometimes you have people who have traumatic brain injury and if it happens after 18, they wouldn't be eligible for regional center, which is a bummer. Um, But if it happened prior to age 18, they could potentially be eligible as long as they meet this other this other criteria, which we're gonna talk about. Um, So you have to have a developmental disability, has to have originated prior to age 18, and then it must be substantial. And that is defined by um, California code of regulations. So I'll just, I'll give the citation in case anybody wants to look it up. It's um, 17 CCR section 54001. And what what substantial means under that code section is a condition which results in a major impairment of cognitive and or social functioning and results in deficits related to the developmental disabilities. It has to be related to your autism or intellectual disability. And there's... um, significant limitation in three of these seven areas so you have to show deficits in either communication which must be receptive or expressive learning self-care mobility self-direction capacity for independent living um, and economic self-sufficiency so I don't know if you have any questions about those areas but there's seven of them that they look at and you have to have deficits in three of the seven to meet this eligibility criteria.
0: Mm, Yeah, thank you so much for clarifying that for parents that are listening.
1: Yeah, so looking then at Regional Center, what type of services do they provide?
2: Yeah, so they have a non-exhaustive list so they can provide a, a lot of things, but I'll give you some examples. And then um, we can talk about some of the other rules that sort of apply to a regional center and them providing these services. So, um, again, if, if people want to look up the code section, it's Welfare and Institutions Code, Section 4512B. That lists some, but not all, right, <laughs> services that exist for people who are regional center clients. So there's speech and language therapy. There's occupational therapy physical therapy, um, applied behavioral analysis, which we call ABA, and that's a therapy for people with autism. You can also get ABA if you don't have autism, but it's it's identified as a research and evidence-based therapy for people with autism. Um, there are other behavior modification programs like RDI, or and then there's things like daycare. They can pay, um, if parents work, they can pay somebody to come and care for your kids while you're at work. Um, Because regular daycare places usually won't take children with disabilities, especially children who have like autism. It's just they don't accept them. Um, They can help pay for diapers. There's adult daycare programs. So, again, it's like daycare, but it's for adults. They can go to a facility or somebody can come into the home. There's things like supported living which would be staff that can come to the home and it it would be an adult, right? Somebody over 18, they're living in their own home. And then there's like staff that come in and do what a parent would have done for them. But now they're 18. So the expectation is they're gonna approximate a life similar to somebody their age without a disability. So the regional center tries to provide services that are um, in their own community and helps them approximate a life like someone without a disability. So that's why we have supported living. There's supported employment, right? We want people who are adults with developmental disabilities to be employed. Um, There's transportation services. We have residential placement, so group homes. Um, There's mobility training. So adults who may not be able to safely access public transportation, they can be trained on how to get around in their community. Um, One of the really important services that I think is that Regional Center provides is respite. So that is, again, a caregiver that's paid to come in, care for the person with the developmental disability and give the parents or the family a break because um, taking care of somebody with a developmental disability can be exhausting. And some parents work, and so the reason they have respite is to give them a break from that care, so they can come back and care for them again.
0: Hmm. Yeah, respite is so needed, um, and that great resource for it. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and you know, like there's all these different rules about these services, so they all exist, right? There's a list of services, and then every regional center has what we call purchase of service guidelines. And it tells you the criteria. I think, and what's important about you know understanding what these are is that these are policies, they're not law, um, but they're the way that regional center sort of determines how they're funding certain services. And sometimes they're in line with the law and sometimes they're not. And as we know, people with developmental disabilities don't fit into like a clean little box, right? So there might be reasons that somebody would be eligible for a service and another person wouldn't be eligible for it. So I think it sort of cuts both ways. You could use these to help you get a service, right? You could argue that you fit into the the criteria um, to get this service, or you could say, hey, this is, you know, I'm kind of an exception and I should receive this service. Um, So every regional center has those and under transparency laws, they should be posted on their website. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: That that is fabulous information, Wendy, for families to know um, and how to advocate for their family and for their child. So, you know, when you're looking at that process, what what is the process to request a certain service that you want, like ABA?
2: Yeah, so I'll go through the process with you guys. It's very similar to if you want something through special education. So, there's these meetings that are held, and then I'll talk about some of the rules that apply to funding these resources. So just remind me to sort of circle back on that um, if I forget. You bet. Okay. So we have um, with regional center, there's what we call an IPP and it's an individualized program plan, almost like an IEP. So it's like this contract that the person with the disability and or family has with the regional center. And there's objectives kind of like the goals in an IEP, right? And then there are services that are linked to these objectives. So when you're wanting a service, you request an IPP meeting, very similar to an IEP meeting, and they have to hold it within 30 days of your request. This is the time to ask for services or discuss services with the person at regional center who's called your service coordinator. So they're sort of like your case manager, right? Um, And they're the ones who you'll be emailing or asking for services. And a lot of times they want to document these requests in an IPP meeting. So you ask for an IPP meeting, have to hold it within 30 days, and then you can record the meeting as long as you give 24-hour notice. So as long as you tell the regional center, I'll be recording, you can do that. Um, Part of the IPP process is that the regional center is to take into consideration what the person with the disability or their family wants. There are, you know, laws under the Welfare and Institutions Code that says when certain services can or cannot be funded, but they're really supposed to be focusing heavily on um, the choices of the person with the disability. So you go to the meeting, you make a request, you say, you know, my child has autism. They have some behaviors that are concerning to us. We would like, you know, ABA funded through the regional center. This is sort of where those other rules come in. So you're talking about the need, you're talking about the service you want. Now the regional center is going to say, okay, um, have you pursued other sources of funding for ABA? Because there's a rule um, that you have to pursue generic resources. And that regional center is what we like to call the payer of last resort. So they pay last. Um, So now that Medi-Cal funds ABA, they're going to want you to go and try to get ABA through Medi-Cal. If you have private insurance, they're going to want you to go to your private insurance and get a denial before they're going to fund it. And there's a couple of things that can happen, right? So let's start with private insurance. You don't have to go out and get private insurance if you don't have it. But if you have it, you have to ask them to cover the ABA. They might say no. If they say no, then the regional center has to fund it. Um, they might say yes, but you're going to have a copay. Well, now you've pursued ABA, you've gotten most of it covered, and then regional center would be responsible for the copay.
1: Yeah, that's great. Wendy, maybe a slight question on that. So what if you uh, contract with somebody that is with your insurance, but isn't covered with Medi-Cal? Because a lot of times Medi-Cal might cover the copay. Um, Can you then request that from regional center? Is that an appropriate uh, request to be made?
2: I think so. It it really is fact-specific, right? So let's sort of play that out let's say you are you have private insurance and there's a, there's a specific ABA agency you're using and there's you want continuity of care, right? Because they know the person, you like them. And right now there's waiting lists for almost every service that people are looking for because of COVID and all sorts of reasons. So making that switch sometimes would, could be detrimental to the person getting ABA services. So let's say your private insurance says, We're not going to fund this anymore, but these people are a vendor of the regional center and they're not a vendor of Medi-Cal regional center would have to pay for the ABA in that situation. Um, Or the other thing that could happen is you start with regional center because you can't, you're on a wait list through your private insurance or you're on a wait list through Medi-Cal, right? So regional center can fund the ABA until private insurance picks it up or Medi-Cal picks it up. And we call that gap funding. So you don't have to wait for the service just because you don't have those, um, you don't have Medi-Cal or private insurance in place yet.
0: That's really valuable information.
2: I think, you know, the other thing to this is if it's going to cost you money to pursue a generic resource, you don't have to do that either. So... I I guess like considering IHSS, right? Some people ask regional center for what we call personal assistance services and it functions very similar to IHSS. They help help with toileting, hygiene, um, feeding, like all of those services. And the regional center will say, well, first of all, you gotta go pursue your generic resource, which would be IHSS. But to get IHSS, you have to have Medi-Cal And some people have too much income to have Medi-Cal and they have a share of cost that's quite large, um, like $700 a month just to have Medi-Cal. You don't have to do that. You don't have to, it basically makes the generic resource unavailable to you. So you can say, I can't do that because the share of cost is too high. I need you guys to pay for it. And then they, under the law, should pay for it.
1: Yeah, that's great. Um, You know, if you're requesting services from regional center and they tell you no, what process should you go about uh, disputing that?
2: Yeah. So if you don't agree or if the regional center doesn't agree to something you're asking for, they if they tell you no, it cannot just be a verbal no. I mean, it can, right? Like, realistically, they could just say no over the phone. What they're supposed to do under the law, though, is provide what we call a notice of action or a notice of proposed action. And it's a letter that explains what your request was, what their answer was, what they considered in making that answer. And it gives you your appeal timelines and process. Um, The notice, there's a couple of things that come into play with these notice of action. So if this is a service you're requesting for the first time, you have 30 days to appeal, okay? And, and that's always your timeline. It's a very short timeline, 30 days. Um, if you had a service in place and the regional center terminates it or reduces it, you still have 30 days to appeal. But you might want to appeal within 10 days, which is a super short timeline. But there's something that gets triggered. It's almost like stay put kind of with um within the special education system. So we call it aid paid pending or APP. And it basically says if you appeal within 10 days, they have to keep your services as they are until a judge decides otherwise, or you agree to something different with the regional center. And that sort of overlaps on, on other public benefits as well it that timeline applies to IHSS if you appeal within 10 days they have to keep your hours as they are any Medi-Cal service you appeal within 10 days has to stay as it is and social security so if somebody's SSI is reduced if you appeal within 10 days of receiving the notice they have to keep your SSI at the rate that it's at so it's kind of an important timeline
0: Yeah, absolutely. Very good for families to know. So that 10 days is when you might want to do the appeal rather than waiting the 30 days, because that really creates that almost stay put scenario.
2: Right. And, and, um, a lot of people can't go without those services or they can't afford to pay out of pocket for those services. So I think that's why that timeline is important. And your notice of action that you get should talk about that 10 day timeline. They're supposed to give you notice of it. Um, so, you know, you get your notice of action. It's like, well, what's next, right? So there's there should be a fair hearing request form that comes with the notice of action that you can complete and turn into your service coordinator. They're supposed to process it for you. Um, you know, my office, we send it directly to The executive office, just because we know them over there, but parents don't have to do that. They can submit it to their service coordinator, and it's you know the responsibility of the service coordinator to make sure the hearing request is filed. Um that fair hearing process is supposed to be informal. And sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, right? But it's it's supposed to be much more informal than a special education hearing.
0: You know, so in looking at that fair hearing process, can families go through the fair hearing process themselves?
2: Yeah. And I think they can, I think obviously you have some parents are a little more savvy than others. And so there's a couple of resources I'll talk about too, that they can access if they just can't afford an attorney or they don't feel like they can go through the process themselves. But I'll I'll sort of talk you through what it's like for a fair hearing with regional center. And it it is much different than special ed. I've done both. And the special ed hearings, I think, you know, there's Relaxed evidence rules, there's all these things happening at once, and it seems to me that the fair hearing process, it's through the Office of Administrative Hearings, it's through the general jurisdiction, and those judges are different than the judges you get for the special ed cases, even though they're both through the Office of Administrative Hearings. Those judges are super relaxed, they're helpful to the family, so some families have gone through the process themselves, and the judges help them through it. They say like, do you have questions for the regional center? Do you have evidence you wanna submit? Um, and then also I deal with San Diego Regional Center quite a bit and they they also help the families through the process. So even though they might say no to something, the person who's um, the fair hearing and mediation coordinator right now is is very helpful to families. I, I think you know they're following the laws when they deny something or they believe they're following the law and they don't want to be audited or for whatever reason but they'll they're also very cordial with families and they'll tell them what they're what they need to do to get through the fair hearing process. So you walk into a conference room or you used to before we had virtual hearings. Right. Um you have your evidence that you give to the judge you should have exchanged whatever evidence you had with the regional center five days prior to the hearing. And it's five calendar days, not business days. Um, and the regional center goes first. They have to explain to the judge why they denied the service or terminated or reduced. They can ask questions of whoever's there. And then it switches over to the person with a developmental disability or their family or their attorney who's representing them. and then it's their job to talk about why they need the service and what law supports that service. And then they can submit their evidence. And then it's over. And the judge makes a decision in writing and you get that decision within 10 days of the hearing. And, you know, I think the other thing is um, if families just feel like they can't do the process or they're scared or whatever, there is an organization, Disability Rights California, they're, they're a nonprofit And there should be one for every regional center. And um, there's a client's rights advocate for every regional center. So for the 21 regional centers, there are 21 clients rights advocates who work for Disability Rights California. And since they're a nonprofit, they'll provide support to families for free. So that is a resource if, if there are families that don't have the money for a lawyer and also just can't do the process themselves.
1: That's really good to know that there's resources out there to really support the family. So looking at that, so if you're in the midst of, you know, working with your service coordinator and you're just kind of at a standstill with them, how can I possibly go through a process of changing that or telling somebody that, you know, we're just not working with the service coordinator very well?
2: Yeah. So one of the, the things, well, one of the rules in the Lanterman Act is if you if you want to change your service coordinator, you're allowed to. So you can go to the program manager or their supervisor and just say, I want to change my service coordinator. They have to do it anytime you ask. Obviously, if you run through every service coordinator at the regional center, then they're not going to have one to give you, right? (laughs) But yeah, I don't know that that's ever happened. Um, And I think, you know, right now, because of everything going on, they're very short staffed over at regional center. So that becomes an issue too, right? The, the only thing about that law is that you don't get to pick who your service coordinator is. So you can ask for a change, but you can't say, I want so-and-so. Um, but yes, they, they should. You don't even have to have a reason. You can just say, I want to change my service coordinator, and they have to change it under the Landerman Act.
0: So Wendy, you just shared about the fair hearing process. What if you have a complaint that is not about services?
2: Um, that process is a little different and it's sort of a paper complaint. And what I mean by that is you don't have a hearing, you might have a phone call with the regional center or with DDS, which is that state agency we talked about in the beginning. Um, we call those, um, 4731 complaints and that's just the code section. So it's welfare and institutions code section 4731, Um, And it's a complaint process that's kind of similar to a compliance complaint in special ed. So you're complaining about the process or you're complaining about a violation of a right versus um, that you didn't get a service you wanted. So if you didn't get a service you wanted or a service was reduced, you have to go through the fair hearing process. That's the appropriate process for that. If you have other complaints, like my service coordinator never calls me back or um, I filed for hearing and you didn't give me a hearing, right? Like those are all 4731 complaints and I I even think I want to, you know, I think there's been. I I know it was accidental, but I even think you could probably file those if somebody has released confidential information and you did not give a written release for that information to be released. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. And so the 4731 complaint is for all those other complaints. And DDS has the form on the website, on their website. They have it in English and Spanish, and they also have a a little like publication on how to file it and what the timelines are. So there's a form you can use and it goes directly to the director of your regional center. The regional center reviews it, you know, 90% of the time it comes back and says we didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> so yeah. Um, so you have appeal rights for that. And then it goes, you can appeal it up to DDS, to the director of DDS. And then they look into it further. And somebody from DDS will call you and go over what happened and ask if there's any additional evidence and then they'll make the final decision.
0: Mm-hmm. So as a parent, just listening to that process, um, you know, whenever you begin to advocate into that level, there's, there can be contention. That happens, right? So, you know, when would a parent like what's kind of the balance here? Is this going to maybe fire things up a little too much, or do you feel like they're going to get a fair and, you know, good response?
2: Yeah, I think so. Obviously, if you file this, it's going to go to the service coordinator. And I've worked with a bunch of different regional centers, and I work a lot with San Diego Regional Center, and I I don't think there's much retaliation, I guess, when you file 4731 complaints. I think if you're a if you're constantly filing fair hearings, they probably get sick of you. But <laughs> I haven't seen a lot of retaliation, you know, to my clients. And so I don't worry too much about it. I know I think I probably see it more in the special education area than regional center, which is nice. Um, but the, the reason the 4731 complaints are important is because DDS tracks them. So if Sandy, let's say San Diego regional center keeps getting the same complaints filed against them, they're going to have a conversation with them and say, hey, what is going on? Why does this keep happening? You're, you guys are violating the Lanterman Act. Why is this happening? You need to fix this. And they'll they'll order corrective action.
0: Super. Thanks for sharing that.
1: So, uh, Wendy, you know, before we go, are there any other rights you really think that parents should know about uh, concerning uh, regional center?
2: Yeah, and it's I think it's more of an, the the rights of people with developmental disabilities. So I always like to talk about this, even though it because it, it's for anyone with a developmental disability. Right. And it's. um. It's Welfare and Institutions Code 4502 through 4505. And it's called Persons with Developmental Disabilities Bill of Rights. And it essentially, and there's it lists them all. So I won't go through all of them, but I'll just tell you essentially what it says. Like the legislature determined that people with developmental disabilities should have the same rights any of anybody like anybody else in the United States, right? Um, And so what they said is persons with developmental disabilities have the same legal rights and responsibilities guaranteed all other individuals by the United States Constitution and laws and the Constitution and laws of the state of California. So rights and responsibilities. And I think part of this, well, and then it lists them just so you know, it says like they have a right to to treatment and habilitation services in the least restrictive environment, right? They have a right to dignity, privacy, and humane care. Like, it's it's all these rights that you and I are entitled to. And I think they should have them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, the, so, sort of a segue is, you know, this exists, and this sort of goes into, like, when someone turns 18 who has a developmental disability, right? They are entitled to make their own decisions, unless a court decides otherwise. And so, somebody turns eighteen, they have a developmental disability until they're a, a, until they're judged to um, need a conservatorship or something like that. They continue to keep all of these rights and have the same responsibilities as us. And so, just to sort of talk about like what happens at 18, right? They continue to keep all those unless you go to a court and ask them to give you a conservatorship to help protect them or to make sure they're not disadvantaged.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great information, especially, I mean, we're, uh, our daughter turned 18 this year. So we know there's a whole lot more information and steps to take at that age. So, you know, it's good information for parents.
2: Yeah, and a lot of, you know, this isn't just regional center specific, but a lot of people with developmental disabilities turn 18 and they're still getting special education. And so if they don't have a conservatorship or they haven't assigned their rights to somebody, right, they get to make the decisions about their education or or even regional center. If they're 18 and there's no conservatorship, regional center is going to say to you, I'm sorry, you don't get to make that request. I need to hear it from the client because they're 18 and unconserved.
0: Right. Exactly. And, you know, in situations like that, um, you know, you, you definitely want to look into the conservatorship because you don't want to run up against that. So Wendy, there's one last question that we always ask our guests, which is what would you like to share with our listeners to help encourage them and to bring hope for the road ahead?
2: Yeah, and specific to Regional Center, um, I think their services are always evolving. And one of the cool things that started this year was the self-determination program. Um, It's been very difficult to get services to find uh, vendors and providers to provide the services. So even if Regional Center says to you, yes, we will give you 100 hours a month of respite, people aren't able to provide or to find respite providers, right? So that's a problem. Um, And I think it started with COVID and they just, some of these providers just haven't bounced back since COVID. So we don't have a lot of providers. And one of the things with regional center is you have to use a regional center vendor. Well, now we have self-determination, which means you, you get a pot of money, right? Based on services you used the last year and you can use those services how you want and you can use them with people who are not regional center vendors. So I think that gives me hope that our clients will actually be able to get their services cuz they're not forced to use a vendor that has a waiting list. So I think you know that's the that self determination program we've been waiting for that to start for years. It was um approved by the legislature years ago, but funding was never put in place. We didn't know how we were going to do the process. And the fact that it started this year is really wonderful. I think it's going to provide a lot of flexibility to families.
0: Wendy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. This is just so great um, to hear all of your insights and you just always come and bring such valuable information for families to be able to advocate for their family and for their child. So thank you.
2: Yeah, thank you. I like doing these, so
0: thank you. Resources and contact information for today's podcast will be included in the show notes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share us with others and be sure to follow us so you won't miss an episode. And we'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a comment or rating and connect with us on social media or on our website at hopeonthehardroad.org.